His heart is for those who don't know him. As for us, but there's something about the shepherd who goes looking for the lost sheep. Amen? Amen. All right. So, as you probably picked up, Pastor Barry is not here with us this morning. He's actually in London, suffering. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Having a good vacation. They had planned to go on this vacation even before he knew he was going to be the pastor. And it still worked out for him to go. So, we're blessing him. We're excited that he's going to come back refreshed, uh, ready more ready than he's been. He's been already been excited, and I'm excited to have him back. Uh, you know, on one hand, when the boss is away, you could say things, but also the boss is away, and it helps when he's around, <laughs> believe me, getting things done. Uh, and if I forgot to mention, my name's Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. And as I'm thinking of Pastor Barry being in London, how many of you ever flown to Europe or Asia? I mean, those are long flights, those are long, long flights. And I, by the grace of God, I was built in such a way that I actually fit in most airplanes um, and in most seating arrangements. And I feel for you people who are six foot, pushing six foot, um, you know, your knees are touching the whole time. You're on a 10-hour, 12-hour, 14-hour flight. And um, for me, it's grueling. For you, it's torture. Like, you might as well just say, whatever you want to know, I'm going to tell you now. Just make it stop, please. You know, you're sitting there, and it's... It's awful. Um, and you start getting in the habit of checking the screen in front of you. And if you don't know, on long-distance flights, like um, I did a mission trip to Africa, and then we connected in London, went down to Nairobi, back up to London and back. Um, you realize that on these flights, they have a screen that you can flip to that's on the back of the seat in front of you that shows you where you are on the map. It's your GPS. And, uh, you know... And you're checking it so many times. I mean, you'll go to sleep. You know, let's say you're coming from London. You go to sleep and you wake up. Okay, I'm, all right, I'm, we're over the Atlantic. Awesome. All right, then you go back to sleep. You wake up. Okay, I'm still over the Atlantic. You wake up. Okay, now I'm still. You play some games. You check it. You're still over the Atlantic. At some point, you cross the eastern seaboard. At another point in that journey, you would start crossing the Midwest. You see your plane going and it's getting closer and closer, and you're getting more and more excited. Why? Because you're heading home. You're heading towards your destination. It's not going to be your only destination in life, but you're heading towards the next one, and you know there are good things at that destination. Your family, your home, your, your comfortable bed. Um, unfortunately, some jet lag, but you know, eventually that will wear off, and you'll be back in your normal sleeping schedule. And as I think about traveling and the excitement of coming home and checking that screen, um, it reminds me of the excitement I have about where our church is going. If you don't know, last uh, Sunday, Pastor Barry uh, shared the vision God has given us as a church for this coming season. If you haven't heard that message, get it online. Uh, we might have some hard copies. Um, putting David on the spot, but he can maybe burn you one back there. Uh, but definitely online and check that message out because um, it is really exciting to see where the Lord's taking us. God has taken us to many great destinations you could say in the past spiritually and in the growth of our church and we're we're going from glory to glory from strength to strength it is really exciting and the fun part is that the lord word to us this morning that he gave to me builds on that Um, and i'm i'm going to talk this morning about our response to that vision and what's funny is even last sunday Barry wasn't even able to unpack everything. Like, he barely touched on some stuff. I, because 
you know, we were close together. I only know that there's way more than he was even able to share. And what's exciting is that as you come every Sunday now, you're going to hear more, of that, more and more of that unpacked. Uh, but as I said, today is about the response. And when we talk about the response to God's will, it's an interesting subject for me because I find out it's an interesting subject in the church in general, especially in the church in the West um, and in cultures that have a really high value of, uh, for rationalism. A lot of times we have this idea that God's will is just going to happen no matter what. And there's an element of that being true. But it embraces what philosophers would call fatalism, fate. It, it kind of just says God's will is going to happen just like I was on that plane and all I got to do is sit on the plane and it's going to happen. So God's vision, God's will for this church is going to happen no matter what, right? Right? And we find out in the Bible that has some truth to it, but that's not entirely true. That God is actually, in his all-powerful sovereignty, connected his will happening on earth to our response. So yes, Jesus is coming back. That's not going to stop. There are certain things that will happen. But God has chosen to not to limit himself to our choices at times. Not that God's limited. Don't get me wrong. God is all-powerful. But in his all-powerfulness, he has chosen to limit himself to our response to his will. And so how we respond to a Vision Sunday, which is really God's revelation of his will to our church in the next season, is really critical. And uh, I could keep talking in theoreticals and using theological words, whatever. But for me to really capture these ideas, I, I need to hear it in a story form. I need to hear how someone played it out. And I want to share a story to you about how Israel walked out a promise God had given them. This promise uh, had to do with them being in exile and coming home. And if you don't know, I believe it was 586 B.C. that Israel, by that point, had been fully conquered and the majority of their nation had been taken from their land and were now captives, exiles, in the kingdom of Babylon. And later, Babylon would be taken over by the Persians, and they were exiles in Persia. And the book of Esther, the book of Daniel, the book of Ezra, the Nehemiah, and some of the other minor prophets are about Israel's history during this time. They're in exile. And it really has a great application to how we should respond to what the Lord is telling us as a church. But before I go into the application, you really kind of need to know some of the depths of that story. And to really understand the depths of that story, you kind of actually need to go back further in Israel's history. Um, partly I'm passionate about this because people have a certain view of God, especially of the Old Testament, that God was angry, judgmental. He was um, arbitrarily just getting mad about stuff and just talking about killing people. And the truth of it, God was extremely loving, extremely merciful, extremely gracious in the Old Testament. And when judgment finally came... Um, it wasn't God because God wasn't loving. And so I want to actually paint that picture for you. So we're going to start actually uh, with Abraham. So Abraham is told, go to this land. I'm going to give it to your descendants, and your descendants will be blessed and be a blessing. And it, Abraham's descendants later became the people of Israel. Uh, after Jacob's time, they went down to Egypt, and then they were captured well, they were there and, and then made to be slaves. And later God sends a man named Moses. Moses frees them by God's power supernaturally, miraculously, and takes them out of Egypt. And then they're in the desert on the way back to the promised land. 
And in the desert, God makes a proposal to them. He had already made a promise to Abraham, but he was going to make a proposal to the people of Israel. He was going to make a covenant with them, a blood covenant. Blood covenants had to do with the idea that um, we're going to do what this covenant stipulates to death. That's partly with the blood, and they would actually kill an animal in the process. There's a whole ceremony behind it. And God proposes that he would be their God, their provider, their protector. He would be in loving relationship with them. He would give himself entirely to them if they would, in turn, give themselves entirely to him. We really don't have covenants like that nowadays. In that time, those kind of covenants were very common. So God was using language that was very familiar to them. But the closest thing in our time to that sort of covenant is when a man and a wife get, come together and say, I give myself entirely to you. Will you give yourself entirely to me? Till death do us part. And there's an exclusivity that I'm going to give myself entirely to you in a way that I won't to anybody else. And I have expectations that you're going to do the same. And actually, even in the ancient time, God's blood covenant language was even similar to marriage language of that time. So as you're thinking of this covenant idea God has with Israel, um, if you want to think of it as God literally marrying the people of Israel, you can think of it that way. And that is actually very appropriate because it wasn't a business contract to God. It was really a heart issue. He's like, I'm giving you my heart. Will you give me yours? In the same way that Jesus comes to us now and says, I'm giving you my heart. Will you give me yours? And um, God had never done this before to a people. And no other nation could ever have claimed that their God did this for them either. You can, it's funny when people compare, by the way, um, ancient religions. And they say, look, there's a lot of similarities between some things in the Bible and you know, what the Jews believe and some things other people believe. But when it comes to a God giving himself this way to a people, there's no comparison. Every creation story outside of the Bible was about gods who were vindictive, who were mad, who almost made man by accident. The Bible is the only account from ancient times of a God who lovingly made a people so why he could be with them, in relationship with them, in friendship with them, married to them. And... Uh, God makes this proposal to them, and in Exodus 24, verses 6 through 8, Israel responds. They're in the desert. In verse 6, it says this, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with with all these words, God proposed, and they said yes. That's important to note, because again, we think God gets mad for just whatever flippant reason, and it's really not true. They had entirely agreed, God, you're giving yourself to us. You're a better deal than anything we could ever come across. And yes, of course, we'll give ourselves to you. Freed us from Egypt. Yes, Lord. Yes. They said yes. They said yes with the blood covenant. And again, there's a whole ceremony behind that. And the interesting thing is that we shouldn't just be the ones who look at it as a marriage. God actually himself looked at it as a marriage. Um, later, you would find out Israel would be unfaithful, and actually it didn't take them too long to do that. And they would be unfaithful in that they would give their hearts and their worship away to other gods. There's a lot of reasons for that. We sometimes struggle with, why would you worship an idol? Why would you worship a graven image? Um, I can say in a lot of those ceremonies there was sexual things going on, so... There was a certain level of pleasure in worshiping these gods. Um, but also, everyone was doing it. And it was very normal 
To worship a God you couldn't see was weird. It was weird. It was odd. For you to worship an idol would be weird. So think of you worshiping an idol. For as weird as that is for you, would have been as weird as Israel worshiping a God they couldn't see. So their knee-jerk reaction is to worship an idol, and to not worship an idol now is weird. And so they keep wanting to go back to what they know, go back to what's comfortable. They want to go back to what's easy. They want to look like the other nations. They want to participate in these uh, sometimes weird fertility rituals that the, the pagan idols would involve. Um, for whatever reason, they would turn away from God. They would give their hearts and worship away. And God, through the prophets, many times would say, you are literally committing adultery because I gave you my heart. I gave you everything I had. I gave you a home. I gave you a land. I gave you resources. And you're giving your heart away. We know this, um, for example, in Hosea 1-2. God uses Hosea as a... Uh, as a prophetic illustration. And in Hosea 1-2, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom or adultery and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. The land commits great adultery because they've forsaken me. You have to understand that when we forsake God, it's not a business contract. It's not like he's disappointed. It's not like, oh man, I was going to get something. He is literally hurt to the heart. And he's telling Israel, guys, you don't realize what you're doing to me. And if you do, know that this is how I see it. And the graciousness of God, that he would be very patient with them throughout their history. Um, when that covenant was being agreed upon and written up, and in the book of Deuteronomy, God again stipulates the covenant, and Israel again says, we agree to this God God explains that if they would follow him, he would bless them immensely. Like, amazing. But if they turned away, there would be negative consequences. Again, we look at that sometimes like, oh man, God's harsh. But just think about it. If your spouse started just sleeping around, there would be negative consequences in your house. And God is saying, in a similar way, there's going to be negative consequences if you start giving your heart away. And the amazing thing about the Lord is that he was very patient. He says, listen, you're going to get negative consequences. And if you don't turn, if you turn, I'll forgive you. But if you keep doing this and you reject my warnings, the consequences are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And I'm not going to read this particular verse, but in Deuteronomy 28, 49, and then verses 63 through 64, he actually says, I would, I'll get to the point where you'll get taken over by another nation. and You're going to get kicked out of your land. Which again, going back to a marriage illustration, makes complete sense. At some point, if a, spouse is, if a spouse is bringing in lovers into the house all the time, being continually unfaithful, at some point the other spouse is going to say, enough is enough, we no longer live together. We're not, we're not together at all. This isn't good. I can't be with you because you've stepped on my heart. And God is saying the same thing. Eventually, I'm going to kick you out of my house because the house was only purposed so that we could be together, so that we would be one. Um, And you have to know, God said that was the last resort, and I'm not going to do it. I'm going to warn you, and he warns them. And just to give you some perspective again about the graciousness and the mercy of God, I'm not even going to talk about prior to David's dynasty. If you know anything about Israel's history, they didn't have a king for a while. Later, Saul becomes king. David becomes king. Solomon becomes king, starts worshiping idols. Crazy guy. And uh, because of his bad decision, 
the subsequent generation has a major crisis in the country, and the country splits in half. There's what becomes the northern kingdom, which takes the name Israel, and the southern kingdom takes the name Judah, after the largest tribe who composes, composes the southern kingdom. That happens in 930 B.C. The northern kingdom, unfortunately, had very few people in it who actually were faithful to God. None of their kings were ever faithful to him. And there was only a small remnant in the entire country who actually worshipped God. The rest of them totally forsook God. And throughout the generations, just kept getting worse, worshipping idols. The patience of the Lord. He, he waited. Let me make sure I got it right. From when I counted 930 to, I believe, 722. He waited 209 years before he kicked him out of the land. To give you some perspective, the United States has only been a country for about 240 years. For almost our entire history, Israel was, the northern kingdom was unfaithful to him. And he eventually got to the point and says, you guys, I've warned you enough, you're out. And the, the, the nation of Assyria came in, took over uh, the northern kingdom, and exiled the northern kingdom, and they were no longer in their home. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah off and on had good kings, and actually during that time they had a good king, uh, King Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was... Um, trying to bring the nation back. He was serving the Lord. And so when Assyria attacked the southern kingdom, God came and intervened, and Assyria was defeated, and Judah was never taken over by Assyria. Unfortunately, after Hezekiah, the king started getting worse and worse and worse. The people started getting worse and worse and worse. And 345 years later, after um, Judah became the southern kingdom, they eventually went into exile too. Babylon came in. In 586 B.C., destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, and the last remaining, there was like very few, but the last remaining amount of people in Judah were finally exiled to Babylon. And the graciousness of God again, that in the midst of him telling them through the prophets, for example, like Jeremiah, he tells them, I'm kicking you out now, but I will bring you back. I'll, you, the temple will be rebuilt. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The Davidic monarchy will be reestablished, and you'll come back. And part of that promise actually had a timeline attached to it. It says in Jeremiah um, 25.11, it says this, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Israel was given a promise, even in the midst of their disobedience, that God would restore them. It's great. Isn't the God of the Old Testament amazing? Gracious, merciful, loving. He says, listen, you've been unfaithful to me for hundreds of years. I will only allow you to be in exile for 70. And that 70 becomes really key because if you think about it, and you're in exile, you're really, you're really holding on to that 70 number. Now, you're hoping it's sooner. You're hoping God's wrong. But after, you know, like 59 years, you're really starting to hold on to that 70 number, aren't you? And their response to God's revealed will says something about our response to God's revealed will to us as a church. Now, uh, I need to tell you that our context is different. God gave us vision last week in the same way that he gave the Apostle Paul assignments in the New Testament. We're not in disobedience. We're not having to repent. Um, Israel needed to repent for what they had done as part of their response to God's promise to take them back. So don't think that I'm saying we were like, we're like Israel as a church and we've sinned. And, okay, so 
That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that there is a way that they responded that we, in turn, need to respond. And there's three key elements to their response that I want us to focus on because I really believe it's what the Holy Spirit is saying this morning, that our response should be to what God is saying to us as a church. Um, And this is, again, very critical because God, again, has limited all-powerful has chosen to limit himself to our response at times. So this brings us finally to Daniel 9. Daniel 9 and verse 1. Are you having fun? This is fun. I like talking about this. Um, Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descendant Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the, Lord, to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. If you don't know, Daniel is an exile who trusted God. Um, it's funny, some of them went into exile and still didn't get the point, and they lived in sin and exile. Daniel actually trusted God, and God gave him such favor that he became like the second or third highest ranked person in the Babylonian empire, like the entire empire. And when the Persians took over the Babylonians, they just kept Daniel on, you know. Um, you know, you have a change of leadership, and they're killing a bunch of the old officials, and all of a sudden they come to Daniel like, yeah, we'll keep him. You know, Daniel stays on. And now Darius the Mede is king of the Persian Empire. And Daniel's reading this prophecy by Jeremiah and realizes 70 years. Now, I, I, would ha- I hadn't done full research where Daniel's at and how close he is to the 70-year mark. Um, but when Daniel reads this, he starts praying. And to me, that is very fascinating. Because again, a lot of times we look at the revealed will of God as something where we simply sit on a plane and it's like, okay, God's going to take us to our destination and we just sit here. What did Daniel intuitively know to do when he found God's revealed will? He started praying it. started praying it. He started asking God. Now, in his context, again, there was sin. So if you read his prayer from verses 4 on, he's literally repenting for sins. He didn't even commit, but he's repenting for his nation because he's praying, God, my, our people need to go back, just like you said. The temple needs to get restored, just like you said. And he's praying and he's crying out. And we, in turn, need to take what God has revealed to us as a church. And our first response should be that we need to pray what he's saying. Um, this is not just some cool thing I'm getting from Daniel. This is all over the Bible for example, in Matthew 6, 9 through 10, Jesus talks about praying in a certain way. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will, catch that, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God has made proclamation from heaven that he has a design for our church. Our church is called to touch this community. Now, we're not the only church in Glendora. We're not the only Christian church in Glendora. We're not the only group of believers in Glendora. But every church in this city has been given a specific assignment. We're all on the same team, but our calling isn't to be Glenkirk. If you don't know, that's a large church here in this city. Our calling isn't to be Grace Lutheran. 
God bless those churches. I believe they're believers. I believe God has given them a specific call. But our assignment has to do with what he's telling us to do. Pastor Barry last week said part of our calling, part of our vision, is that we would be a blessing to this school. Now, again, I'm sure we're not the only church that seeks to bless this school. But if you didn't know, we're the only church that actually meets in this school. We're the only church that meets in this school. We have a unique opportunity to bless this school. And when Pastor Barry says we need to be praying for the teachers, the students of this school, like we hear that on a Sunday morning, but how many of you like put it on your list or calendar it out? And by the way, this is not guilt, by the way. I would never try to motivate you through guilt because it never works for me. I've been motivated to live righteously when I actually believed my righteous actions would take effect. When, when I, my prayers would actually be fruitful. And God is saying, if you will pray for this school, things will happen. Some things you might not even realize until you get to heaven. If you will pray for this school, if you will pray for Glendora, if you will play, pray what God's will is for this church and this community, these things will happen. Because again, we have this mind like, if it's God's will, it's just going to happen. And Daniel's like, no, if it's God's will, I need to pray. I need to pray. Why would Jesus say, your kingdom come, your will be done? It wasn't just nice words. It wasn't just the beginning of a very eloquent prayer that we just kind of mumble off. It was a, a model for us praying a certain way that God, your will, we declare, will happen here. We pray it. We declare it. And we're not begging him. Why? Because we already know he wants to do it. We don't come to prayer begging. We come to it confidently. And actually, there's a verse. Um, I don't have this in my notes, but I had him put it up. 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if you read the context, by hearing us, he actually does what he says. When we pray according to the will of God, God actually does it. But I would propose that if we don't pray... There would be things that didn't happen that should happen. And the only reason some of you don't pray is because you don't believe your prayers have effect. The blood of Jesus, by the way, has made you righteous. And so when it says near the end of the book of James that the prayer of a righteous man are powerful and effective, a righteous woman, it's referring to you. You're not righteous because you were some good saint. You're righteous because Jesus died and gave you his righteousness. Another sermon, if you're confused, I'd love to have coffee with you and explain that all. Um, or ask the good majority of people in this church, and you'll get the answer. But my point being is that our prayers actually have effect. They actually move heaven and earth. They do things. Man, I I can't wait to get to heaven and watch. um, It's almost like watching the director's commentary on my life. You know, you ever seen a DVD and you watch the director's commentary? I can't do it for a lot of movies, but some I, I just had to. It was so interesting. And, uh, it's where basically you don't even hear the movie, but you hear the, uh, the director talking about what was going on while they were shooting that scene or that part of the film. And I think in a similar, similar way, God's going to be able to give us commentary and say, listen, when you saw all this stuff happening in the natural and you chose to pray anyways, this is what was happening in the spirit. You have no idea. Church, you have no idea how powerful you are in God because God is in you and God is all-powerful. So when you agree with his words, literally heaven and earth is being moved. Um, I have a cool story. And by the way, I'm not great at this. I'm learning with you. I'm not perfect. I know a lot more people who are better intercessors than me. But I want to tell you, as small and feeble as my efforts are, not that my prayers are small and feeble, because, again, 
one word that agrees with God is powerful. But as I'm learning this, God has showed me some things. And um, I want to take you to a time, maybe five, six years ago, and again, I apologize, I didn't research this, but uh, in, you know, when the Iraq war started, uh, what is that, 2004, five, it was still going in 2000, 2003, okay. So back when the Iraq war started, 2003, I graduated in, uh, high school, I believe, and, um, and I just had it on my heart that I was going to start praying for our troops over there. Um, I was praying that they would be protected. And I prayed, Lord, I pray that the gospel would spread in Iraq. Now, whether you think we should have gone or not is irrelevant at this point because they're there. In 2003, we had already gone. Whether we left good or not is irrelevant at the point we were there. In 2003, we're there, and I know it's God's will that there be peace. And I know that it's God's will that people get saved. If you need me to show you where that's at in the Bible, I can do it. But I knew that was part of the revealed will of God for the country of Iraq. I still pray that today. Not as often as I did. I should still do that often. But I would pray that. And when I say I would pray that, you have to know it wasn't something super eloquent. It wasn't even super pretty or spiritual. Um, It was spiritual, but uh, I, I do have a list, by the way. And I have a list of things that I try to remember in prayer. Now, I don't, I'll admit it, I don't necessarily refer to my list every day. And I don't really focus on my list as the majority of my prayer. I actually get through my list sometimes rather quickly, which I'm not even saying is good. I'm just telling you what I do. I, when I spend time with the Lord, most of the time I'm worshiping or I'm praying in the Spirit. And, uh, but, um, but I have this list because I feel like there's things I need to at least remember in prayer and I need to remember often. And some of those things are certain nations God's put in my heart. Some of those things are, are church, certain people. Um, I, I really take it seriously recently when I tell you that I'm praying for you that I, I probably have gone into my Google Doc and put your name. Some of you have a name uh, on my list that I just men- mentioned of you. And um, if you'd like me to pray, just let me know. But um, on, the, on that list was, again, revival and the spread of the gospel in the country of Iraq and peace and protection for our troops. And I would pray that for years. Again, maybe once a week, two or three times a week, once a month. I mean, I can't tell you I was perfect, but I was consistent in a certain way. And um, some years later, I came across a couple books. And if you don't know, I love to go to used book places and get books for good deals um, in certain genres that I like, history, biography, or one of them. And um, I in one area, I came across this book called A Table in the Presence, and it says the dramatic account of how a U.S. Marine battalion experienced God's presence in the midst of the chaos in the war in Iraq. So this was a Marine chaplain stationed with a battalion of Marines, and it's his story about what happened in the first so many months of, of the Iraq war. Um, the second, well, let me just tell you what's in this book first. I'm reading this book, and the guy's talking about soldiers getting saved. He's talking about soldiers getting protected. Um, them, in, like he says, encountering the presence, the peace of God in the midst of chaos. Uh, I mean, when they say war is hell, I don't know that from experience, but I, I, li- I truly believe that. I think there's times where war is just. I'm not a pacifist, but I don't think it's ever enjoyable. And they're going through it. And he's talking about how they're encountering God in the midst of one of the most difficult things you can probably go through. 
The other book I came across, actually I have a few books by him, but this one specifically was important. Um, this one's by a guy named Andrew White. He's called the Vicar of Baghdad. He's an Anglican priest who, before the Iraq War, was actually given permission, um, amongst other things, to pastor uh, an Anglican Christian church in Baghdad. And when the war happened, he was known as the pastor of the only known standing Christian church in the entire capital city of Baghdad. He was there before Saddam. He was there during the war. He was there after the war. And only probably in the last four months had to leave because it got really crazy. And if you ever read anything by this guy, it's insane because they all see miracles on the same day as they see great tragedies. People are getting healed in their church physically and little kids are getting murdered for being Christians. And, you know, the stuff ISIS is doing now was being done by other people prior to ISIS. ISIS is worse, I believe, though. But um, people in his church were getting killed, and yet he's like, God was moving powerfully. He has stories of God's manifest presence showing up as a cloud. Like, these people, he said, are so full of joy. Why? Because they had to tap into the only source they knew, and that was Jesus, and, uh, or the only source they knew to work. And he has story after story, and his role is very interesting, too. He's been called into hostage situations. He's had such favor with the Shiites and the Sunnis and all the Muslim groups that when something goes down, sometimes they would call him in, even though he's not a government official. He's not part of anybody's military. Um, But both sides kind of liked him. So he would sometimes get called in and say, will you help negotiate this hostage situation? Will you help these two sides talk something through? And he has an organization that works towards reconciliation in the Middle East. He works in Iraq and Israel. Look him up. Um, because of the miracles, some people think he's a loony. Uh, he's not. Uh, but uh, great guy. And as I'm reading these books, I, just, I feel like the Holy Spirit was telling me, see, your prayers are taking effect. Now, I want to tell you, I don't take credit for this man's faith. This man made faith choices that I have, that are his faith choices. I don't take credit for the stories in here. And I don't take credit for the Marine, cha- I almost said Army, Marine chaplain's stories in here. But the Lord said, your prayers are taking effect. See, what wasn't on the news, what you were praying for was happening. But a lot of times what we pray for doesn't make the news. But God is moving. People are getting saved. And I wonder if some of those things might not have turned out that way. Again, I don't take credit for their stories or their testimonies. But when the Holy, when Holy Spirit tells me I, my prayers are taking effect, I get encouraged more to pray. I get encouraged more to pray for new community. I get encouraged more to pray for Glendora. I get encouraged more to pray for our city, for our country. Can you imagine what would happen if believers actually started praying more for the problems that we see in our country than complain about them? That's a whole other sermon. But um, I, I think one of the things we have just lost sight of is that God does hear us when we cry out and pray according to his will. So one of those key responses that I really want you to catch is that as we are hearing God's vision come from the front on Sunday mornings and as Pastor Barry talks at other times, we need to be praying it. We need to be asking, Lord, help us reach our community. Help us reach those who are in bondage. Help us, Lord, restore families. And again, we're not the sole answer. We're not the only church here. But our assignments are assignment. No one else is going to do it. Why? Because he only gave it to us. And some of us, have relationships with people in this city, in your community, that is only yours. Some of you know people who you're the only Christian in their life. So you need to be praying. 
Again, I'm not trying to guilt you. I want you to catch a vision. It takes powerful and it's effective. The other two elements I'm going to go through a little bit quicker, but they're just as important. Um, the second element is not necessarily a response, but it's a way of thinking. Uh, let me turn to Ezra 1. Ezra. Let me turn to my notes. See, David's already there. This man's amazing. All right. Ezra 1, 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Ezra 1, 1 through 4, God fulfills his promise. He takes a pagan king, and the king actually makes it law. God's people, you need to go back and build them a temple. Who would have thought it would ever come about that way? I don't think any of the Jews did. I wouldn't have guessed that. Yet God, through his sovereignty, orchestrates that Cyrus, king of Persia, makes a decree. If you people are still out here, go back to, his, go back to your land and build him his house. Rebuild the temple. To fulfill the word of the Lord 70 years. And some look at that 70 as a little more rounded up. It might have been like 67 or maybe God was gracious and just cut it short. But the word is fulfilled. It is fulfilled. But I need you to notice something. First of all, there's a way of thinking that Cyrus talks to a specific group of people at a specific time. Who were they? His people. They were the Jews. They were the exiles. And in a similar way, we need to see that God's word to this church is God's word to us, to you. Wait. Doesn't that already make sense? Well, it, can, it should, but sometimes we can sit in the pews and hear, our church is going to do this. And what we hear is, Barry, you're going to do this. We hear that our church is going to do this, and Kurt's going to go do this. Our church is going to do this, and this other person, that person, but we don't see us doing this. Because we don't see us as new community. Now, if this isn't your church home, we're so happy you're here. If you want to join, keep coming. It's awesome. So... I'm not talking to you if you're not here in this regard. I'm not challenging you, I should say. But if you are part of this family, that word is for you. And we need to respond. Pastor Barry's going to meet with the principal of sellers and say, how can we be a blessing? Not so we get something, but we want to be a blessing to you. And when the school comes back and says, well, if you could do this, will there be people in the church standing up and saying, we will? Do we see it as God speaking to us? Not just as the church as the concept church or the ethereal church or the oh that new community organization is going to do it no no um like he said last week there's no volunteers in this church there's just the the church itself like we're the body we're the church church is not a building there's people it's really easy to illustrate in our context because we don't have a building so um it's you guys you in the seats you in the seats um the second or the third part i should say just goes along with that um and it had three points, maybe that's why I broke it up. But uh, the third part is simply that it required a level of participation. It required obedience. 
God said, at this point in time, you need to go back and rebuild the house. Well, what if they just stayed home where the house had been rebuilt? Or would it have been rebuilt maybe later, but just not then? You know, God did tell the children of Israel to take the promised land. They didn't listen, and they had to wait 40 years longer than they should have. God's will was that they got in earlier. God's will was not that they sinned. God's will was that they got in the first time, but listen, they didn't listen to him and obey what he said. Will we obey the Lord? Again, I'm not trying to guilt you. I have no motivation for guilt. I'm, guilt's nasty. I don't like guilt. Repentance that leads to sorrow, or sorrow that leads to repentance, that's something else, but I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm trying to give you a vision that if we would actually obey the Lord, this community is going to get changed. You're going to go to heaven, and God's going to say, I want you to meet this person who got affected by your obedience. There are literally people, hundreds of people, that are going to be walking with Jesus because you were obedient to the word of the Lord. And I'm excited because you're not a church that I have to kind of pound in the head about this. You're a church that obeys God, loves God, and wants to do what he says. I'm just trying to get you excited about when we do obey, when we do step out, when we hear a pastor say, go here and we go, or when we step into what God is doing and saying, it will take effect. God will move. One last story, and then we'll close. It's always dangerous for a preacher to say. Um, there was a young woman by the name of Amy Simple McPherson, and here's a book about her. I, you probably can't see that picture. I'm moving too fast. There we go. Uh, there was a time in her life where she was married a second time because her first husband died. Um, she, they were missionaries in China, and almost immediately when they got there, he just he passed away. And she had to go back home, pregnant, give birth, and she subsequently got remarried not too long after that. This is about 1900, 1910s. Sorry, I don't have that date, but um, it's around that decade area. And um, she's married, uh, but she just doesn't feel very fulfilled, and she senses the Lord saying, you need to go preach. Now, if you know anything about history, it was a big deal a woman was told to preach back in that day. Some churches, it's still a big deal. And, um, and she's told, she, God's telling her not only preach, but be an evangelist. I think it's even a bigger deal. And she's, for whatever reason, she's like, no, no, my life's different, God. Things failed in China, blah, 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 blah. And she gets sick. Now, I don't believe God sent the sickness. I don't know where the sickness came from. Um, I do know obedience opens us up to stuff that you know, submission to the will of God will protect us from. Not saying, again, if you obey God, you're not going to have problems, but there are problems you can't avoid in obedience. <laughs> it's a whole other sermon. Um, she starts getting sick and sick, and she's literally dying. Like, she's on her deathbed, and I forget what the sickness was. But she, and in her weakness, I don't even know if she could mutter it, she's in her mind saying, Lord, if you heal me, I'll go. If you would read the account, she literally gets, gets healed instantly. Gets up and is like, yes, I need to go. And she's actually a pretty energetic, boisterous woman. And she gets in a car with her mom. And she, might have, she at least had her son and maybe her daughter at that time. They get in the car and they start driving around the country preaching. Uh, fun fact, she was the first woman to ever drive cross-country without a man in the car. Um, and she drove cross-country seven times. Um, I think during that period, her campaigns were 
that time was like three or four years she was preaching, maybe it was seven, I think it was three or four, and she's preaching in these tent meetings, and people are getting saved, and she's praying for the sick, and they're getting healed. I mean, getting healed, they're coming in with crutches, and they're leaving their crutches behind. If you ever read the stories of her revival meetings, like, it's amazing what the Lord is doing through this woman. If you ever study her life, by the way, she wasn't perfect, none of us are, but where she obeyed God, God came through in a big way in her life. So I just focus on the obedience part and just say, thank you, Lord, you use weak vessels. But it's amazing the things that happen. Literally hundreds of thousands of people got saved, and I could even argue millions of people got saved because this woman eventually said, yes, Lord, I will do what you say. Guys, obedience to God isn't always easy. It's not always fun. It's not always what you want to do. And when Pastor Barry says, hey, the school would like us to do this. Will you give up a Saturday to do this? I don't know if I want to give up my Saturday. I, don't, I had other plans. I have things going on. But do you realize that if you would obey the Lord, someone's eternity is going to get affected? That when you hear God's call and you actually step into that, that people's eternity are going to get affected? You don't know this. She was the founder of the Foursquare denomination. She didn't actually mean to even start a denomination. That's the story how that happened. But um, she founded this denomination. That's actually our church organization home. Her obedience to the word of the Lord, I would argue, is partly cause for our existence as a church right now. I tell you right now, I wouldn't be in San Dimas if Foursquare wasn't an organization. Because the Bible college she started, I went to in San Dimas. Actually, Deb went to it, Barry, Megan. Again, this isn't like Foursquare's the end-all, be-all. I'm just telling you, her one decision of saying, yes, Lord, had exponential results. And so think what will happen if you take what seems like a small task and say yes, God, to it. When God says, here's my revealed will, will you step into this? And you do. You have permission to imagine this touching someone's life, because it does. And by the way, any ministry that you're participating, serving in our church, and again, anything you're doing, loving people in the community, you have no idea what it's doing. When you say yes to God, God takes your loaves and fishes which is from our reading this morning and, and the word. Um, it's funny, Tom mentioned it in prayer, and I actually had that sense before, so we're hearing the Lord. Um, but God will take your loaves and fishes, your small amount, and God will do immeasurably big things with that. Forget about guilting you into obedience. Just show you that it actually works. Forget about guilting you into prayer. It actually works. Why? Because God is faithful. It's not a magic trick. I'm not praying. I'm not begging. I'm not making God do something he doesn't want to do he wants to do it it's not magic magic's you're trying to manipulate spirits to do things that they may or may not no no this is god simply saying if you pray i will move if you obey i will move so god's spoken my question to you is what is your response because god's will for this church will have effect but some of that is hinging on whether you will respond a certain way but i actually have great confidence that you will this is a great church. I love this church. You guys are amazing people. Actually, I've at times wanted to just stand up here and share stories about people in this church because some of you don't even know each um, a lot of the people's stories, and I've just been here a while, 10, 11 years, um, and I, I know a lot of your stories. You've been very faithful, and you've loved Jesus, and you've seen God do amazing things. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's stand, and I'm going to pray for you guys, bless you, commission you. And I would like to invite the prayer teams to come forward.
And just as I was mentioning earlier about um, praying and seeing results, we really believe that at this church. Uh, if, if you have sickness in your body this morning, we believe it's God's will that you'd be healed. And we want to pray for you. If you have something that's going on, we want to partner with you in prayer. God's bigger than whatever issue you're facing. And if you just need to come up and say, listen, this message hit me right here. I need someone to agree with me. You can come up for prayer for that. You could turn to someone in the aisle. There's something powerful about just saying, you know what? I need you to hold me accountable. Will you pray for me that I'm obedient to the word of the Lord? So I'm, I'm going to pray. I'm going to bless you guys. I'm going to declare God's blessing because it's his will, and I know he's going to do it. And then we'll end, and I want you guys to have an amazing Sunday. The prayer teams, as I mentioned, are here. This isn't kind of a side note. This is part of the service. We take this very seriously. They take this very seriously. We believe God. We're, we sometimes have this little kind of like, man, we wish everyone would believe that prayer was as important because then they would come up. It, 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 uh, to think that someone would walk out of here and not get their answer when they could have gotten it. I'm not saying things always happen right away, but listen, things happen when we pray. All right, so let me pray for you. Lord, I declare blessing over this church. I declare over you, you will be a light, a shining city on the hill. The Lord is going to do things through you beyond your uh, capacity to imagine. The Lord's not only going to fulfill his word, but he's going to touch your life as well. He's not only going to reach this community, but I declare healing in your families. Some of you are believing God for financial things right now. Those are small issues to God. He's going to take care of it, but trust him, obey him. I declare over you that God is faithful. I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. And Lord, we receive this morning your word. God, I know where I haven't always done what you've called me to do. Lord, I repent, and Lord, I align myself. I submit myself to your word this morning. And I declare over you new community as you would submit yourself, as you align yourself to the word of the Lord, that he is not only going to bless you, but you're going to be a blessing to many. And some things you won't even find out till the other side of eternity. So I thank you, Lord, that you're doing this. Be with Pastor Barry and Megan as they're coming back this, this week and give them safe travels. Help them with the jet lag and everything involved. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm so excited you guys came. So happy that you're here. And um, I don't necessarily want to kick you out, but you're free to leave if you'd like. But you can stay around. If you want to give us a hand with a chair, that would be great. Uh, we, we do have to take down... The school doesn't leave, let us leave stuff up because they use the room. No. <laughs>